Cause he gave his everything. Well, good morning, church. You know, it, it shouldn't be a crime to have uh, a respectful conversation with someone from the other side. It, it shouldn't feel like it's some kind of betrayal for you to, to exchange ideas back and forth about what you believe with someone who doesn't already share your beliefs. It, it shouldn't seem like you're, you're being disloyal if in, in the, the span of that conversation or in your own experience talking to somebody, you, you decide that, you know, there, there may be some things that you're just You've been thinking too narrowly about, that, you, that you've, you've been too overly confident that, that you understood all of the aspects to whatever that, that topic happens to be. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't feel like you're making a mistake to admit that with all that you might know, there's still more that, that you have to, to learn about the things that matter most. But you know, in, in our world, there are times when it can feel like a crime. It, it can feel like a betrayal. It, it can seem like, you know, you, you are being disloyal. That, that maybe you are making a mistake. I, I grew up going to a church filled with people who are really loving. And I want to be really clear about that. They were loving in all kinds of, of different ways, but they were also really anxious people. You know, they were totally and completely obsessed with making sure that they got everything right when it came to, to their understanding of God and their understanding of God's word. And, and so there was this pressure to make sure that whatever we believed whatever we talked about believing, that we were precise, that we explained it always in the exact same ways, and, and that we together, we, we always saw issues from the same perspective. And, you know, it, it wasn't like I ever remember anyone quite saying it this bluntly, but basically we, we were as sure as we could, we could possibly be as human beings that we were right and everybody else was wrong. And I mean everybody else. You know, we, we didn't know what was going on with, with anybody who happened to disagree, who happened to, to think differently than we did. We, we didn't know if it was that they, they just didn't know or if they were confused, that they were honestly just, you know, mistaken. Or on the other hand, if they, if they were intentionally deceptive and misleading other people. We, we weren't sure about all that, but we were sure that if they believed differently than we did, then it meant that they were believing the wrong things. And if they were believing the wrong things, well, we were convinced that that meant that their eternal destination was at very real risk. And so because we, we loved and cared about all people, and especially people who happened to be mistaken or, or misguided, we felt like God was calling us to point out those mistakes of, of thinking and those, those shortcomings in their faith that we needed to point that out to them, right? Because there was just too much at stake. We, we didn't just really like to be right. We, we, we didn't just have this deep desire to be right. We absolutely had to be right. 
Because our own spiritual, eternal destination depended on it. You know, I, I think back to that, that time in my life, and it was, it was clear to me that, that different wasn't just frustrating or annoying or, or challenging. Different was dangerous. It was dangerous. And so we actively avoided ever really opening our hearts up in conversation with people who, who we knew didn't already believe what we believed. Right? We, we, we avoided ever really spending meaningful time with, with folks that came from different backgrounds, certainly different faith backgrounds from, from us. And, and if we found ourselves kind of stuck in a situation where we were having a conversation with someone who didn't share our beliefs, we made sure that we did almost all of the talking and almost none of the listening. Right? Because if, if we listened some... They were just wasting their time. We were the ones who already knew the truth, so we were the best ones to share the truth. Right? We were the best ones to explain it. And if they somehow managed to teach us something new that we hadn't heard before, it's not like there was any part of us that believed we could trust that. If it was new, it was wrong. Right? And so we, we needed to make sure that we were the ones doing the talking and they were the ones doing the listening. And you know, when it comes to reading anything that, that any biblical scholar wrote, if, if they didn't agree with all of our doctrinal positions, and I mean all of them, well, we weren't going to waste our time doing that. And if we got stuck somehow for some reason because of a lack of planning, listening to a preacher or a teacher who was from some other Christian stream of faith, you know, we were, again, we, we didn't want to hear anything new from anybody because it couldn't be the truth. We had the truth. And we were the ones who needed to share it. Now, whether or not you have any personal experience with growing up in that kind of faith background, whether or not, in other words, you're used to viewing the world of the church that way, all of us in this room, in one way or another, know something about, right? We have some experience of viewing the entire world this way. Of having this sense that we can kind of separate the world into categories, that, that we can have labels that help us navigate who we should listen to and who we should spend time with and who we should avoid, who we should run away from. And we got really broad labels like right and wrong, and safe and unsafe, and trustworthy and untrustworthy, real news and fake news. I can keep going. You know the point I'm trying to make here. It's that it's always been tempting to see our world as a place where there's this constant ongoing struggle between us and them. And you add to that the pressure that we're relatively certain, and this certainty makes us feel afraid. We are relatively certain that only one side can ultimately win this, this struggle Well, you end up with overheated debate and combative disagreement and toxic division and constant supply. And we get to the place where whether we're talking about church or we're just talking about a worldview, different feels dangerous. It just does. And you don't have to to watch the news very long to realize or, or to be on social media very long to realize that 
Once we decide that somebody's different and that difference makes them dangerous, well, we give ourselves permission to pretty much behave in any way we feel like we need to behave to win. The Pharisees almost always get a bad rap in the New Testament. Have you noticed that? I mean, they're usually presented as kind of one-dimensional, legalistic, theological bad guys who are constantly arguing and disagreeing with Jesus and, and constantly criticizing his followers. You never really tend to encounter a story in the New Testament about a Pharisee and you think to yourself, man, I wish I was more like that guy. And yet, what we know about first century Pharisee faith is that they were actually more complex than that, and they were often closer theologically to Jesus than we tend to give them credit for. Here are some of the things they shared with Jesus, right? They, they had dedicated their lives to trying to understand the will and the calling of God. They believed as a community in a future resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe that. They believed it. They were constantly trying to figure out how to apply the ancient words of Scripture into new and ever-changing cultural circumstances. They had a sense that God was giving ongoing revelation to his people, and they wanted to find a way to tap into that. All of these are aspects of the Pharisees that I would say they pretty much share with Jesus. But there is one key difference. And it is a significant difference. And that is that when we read the New Testament and we look at how the the Pharisees behave and handle themselves, how they talk, how they interact, not just with Jesus and his disciples, but how they seem to have interacted with everyone in their community, is that there's there's a radical shift from the way they view our relationship to God and how Jesus views our relationship to God and more specifically how our relationship to God actually works. The Pharisees, as I read them in the New Testament, tend to act as if they believe that our moral track record in keeping God's law, that's what can unlock our experience of God's love. It doesn't have to unlock our experience of God's love because, see, it's, it's all dependent on how well you keep the law. Jesus, on the other hand, consistently preaches the exact opposite. And that is that he is, he's totally dedicated to the idea that it's actually God's love that unlocks our experience of God's law. God's law is a gift as far as Jesus is concerned. It's not a hurdle that's in your way. It's a guide. It's a teacher that helps you have the the only chance you're really going to have to be guided into a good life. A life of blessing that God has described to his people. If you'll pay attention to it, You'll find yourself having this kind of blessed experience, Jesus says. That's a significant difference. Do you understand? God's love unlocks God's law. It's never the other way around. And if you get it backwards, it impacts everything when it comes to your understanding of your relationship to God, the the dreams that God has for us, and the ways that, that we believe God is calling us to interact with other people. 
But if you believe, like the Pharisees believe, that you have to get the law of God just right before you're ever going to get to really experience God's love, well, guess what starts to happen? You start to believe that the only hope you really have is moral perfection. I want to say that again. The only hope you really have is moral perfection, which is another way of saying the only hope you really have is something you actually can't do, which isn't any hope at all. It impacts everything. It changes everything. And I'm convinced that just like the brothers and sisters that I, I went to church with when I was growing up, that the Pharisees were loving in many different ways, but they were so filled with anxiety about getting everything right that it was almost impossible to be around them and be comfortable in your own skin. And what that means is that the people who need God the most, they can't get to an experience of God's love through God's people because God's people, at least in the form of the Pharisees, are insisting that the only doorway is through keeping perfectly God's law. It's impossible, not just for them. As the Pharisees, it's impossible for all the people they're trying to lead. It's it's impossible for all the people they really, truly believe they care about. Now look, I'm, I'm pretty sure that none of us, when we're reading the gospel stories and, and we're reading how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees or we hear these stories, I'm, I'm relatively certain none of us looks at that and thinks, you know what, man, I am such a Pharisee, right? We just kind of have this internal defense mechanism that says, well, if the Pharisees are causing problems for Jesus, I can't be a Pharisee. So we don't wrestle with it at all, not really, But here's what I think we can admit this morning, even if we can't bring ourselves to say, you know what, at times I I believe and I behave like a Pharisee, I think we can at least say that we understand what's motivating them. Right? I think we understand, we get what's keeping them up at night. It's this unrelenting pressure that the only way we're going to experience being saved is if we're being right. And that will never, ever work. And so it becomes an obsession. It becomes a trap. And when the, very, when the very focus of what you're hoping is going to save you, when the very focus of what you hope is going to rescue you is a trap, what options do you have? Well, John tells us a story in John chapter 3, about a Pharisee. And he's a little more complex than a lot of the stories that we tend to get about Pharisees. And so I want us to read that together now. If you've got your Bible, open up to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, John writes, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, teacher, We know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they're old? 
Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asks. And they go back and forth for several verses where Jesus is explaining things and Nicodemus is struggling to understand it. And finally, we get to verse 19 where we read these words. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light, but will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And some of their back and forth that we didn't read just now, we read together in our responsive reading at the beginning of church. So some of this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus are a collection of the most famous words from the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave. The Son of God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? We don't know nearly as much about Nicodemus as I would like to know, but we do know that he's a Pharisee. So we have some idea of what he's wrestling with internally if he's a typical Pharisee in the first century. And we know that he's terrified that he really can't be saved unless he's constantly being right. Right? That he's hoping his ability to keep God's law will eventually unlock God's love. He's got to be anxious. He's got to be concerned. And yet he's also got to be convincing himself, himself every step of the way that as much as it's humanly possible, he is right. That's the only hope he's got, is that he's, he's at least more right than anybody else. And yet here he is coming to Jesus to have this conversation because I'm convinced that he's reached a place where he understands the limitations of his own understanding. And because of the limitations of his own understanding, there's a limitation to the degree that, that he has that he, he understands he can even possibly do what he has set out to do. You know, my guess is that until Jesus showed up, Nicodemus had, had felt pretty confident that he believed the right ideas, that he was teaching the right lessons, that, that he, as much as anybody, could see what God wanted him to see. But then like Jesus so often does, like for, for so many of us, Jesus causes Nicodemus to start to wonder if he's missing something. Right With all that he, he believes he's able to see, he starts to wonder if he's not seeing something that's really, really important about himself, about God, about life, about, about truth, about everything. And I, I think we're not supposed to miss the fact that Nicodemus comes to seek the truth from Jesus under the, the cover of darkness. He comes at night. 
Right? He, he doesn't show up in the middle of the day where anybody walking by on the street could see this conversation happening. He, he doesn't talk to Jesus about his theological concerns during a formal teaching time where countless other people could be listening in. No, it's at night. And that's not an accident. It's, it's after hours. And while I can't prove it, I'm convinced that Nicodemus chooses to visit with Jesus at night because this is a dangerous conversation they're having. At least it is for Nicodemus. A well-respected Pharisee. A member of the, the Jewish ruling council. He's not supposed to be truly seeking the truth from anyone. He's supposed to be explaining it. He's not supposed to be going to Jesus to ask questions, authentic questions about what matters most or about how to please God. He's supposed to be defending the truth that, that he and all the rest of the Pharisees have worked so hard to take a hold of. But Nicodemus, I think, he's reached a place of realizing that while he may not have the courage to have a conversation with Jesus in the middle of the day, he's still, he's willing to risk just about everything. If there's a chance that Jesus is going to help him experience God the way he's always longed to. You know, Nicodemus says, as he's talking to Jesus, that he, along with all kinds of other people, they've been watching Jesus. They've been watching how he teaches. More than that, they've been watching what he's able to do through his signs. And Nicodemus says, I know you're somebody special. In fact, he says specifically, I know you come from God. I can see that, Jesus. And, and seeing is such an important idea, it's, it's such an important theme throughout the Gospel of John, that when Nicodemus says, I see that you come from God, that's, that's an admission of at least the beginning of faith. But he can't really see what that means. And he, he understands that push and pull in his own heart. So he says, I see you come from God, but I don't, I don't think I'm really seeing. And I need you to help me. And, and the reality here is Jesus knows it and Nicodemus knows it. Jesus is different and in Nicodemus's world, different is dangerous. But he has to know. He, he has to be able to see. And instead of telling Nicodemus, and this is what I would hope. If I was Nicodemus and I took this risk and I, I sneaked under the cover of darkness to go talk to this teacher because I think he might know something that, that me and the rest of my biblical scholar colleagues have missed. I would hope that Jesus would just lay out in a really nice, clear, logical presentation, this is what you need to, you need to know. Right? They would just be kind of the straightforward moment of, of learning and religious education. That's not at all what Jesus ends up doing for Nicodemus here. It's not the kind of conversation they have. Jesus ends up saying, look, um, look Nicodemus, in order to truly see, you have to be baptized in water and in spirit. Nicodemus, you... You have to die so that you can be born again. This isn't, you're not a presentation away, Nicodemus. You're a life away. And in order for us to hear what Nicodemus heard all those years ago, I think for us to hear it the way God wants us to hear it, we have to, we have to step into 
to Nicodemus' shoes in this story. And we have to realize that Jesus isn't just talking to him. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, look, if you really want to see God at work in the world, it's not enough for you to learn new ideas. You're going to have to become a new person living a new life. That's what it's going to take. And that kind of life transformation is not something that we do. That kind of life transformation is something that God does. It is a complete soul restoration. And that's something that only God is able to do. And God does that through the incomparable power of unconditional love. Becoming a new person. Living a new life is not something that you and I can achieve through diligence and hard work. It's something that instead of us achieving it, we we have to embrace it. We can only embrace it. We embrace it through, you know, through through a sense of humility and perseverance. It's, It's this free gift of grace that we either ignore or we honor. And if we find the strength and the courage to honor this free gift of grace, we'll find that as the broken places in our hearts are healed, the eyes of our hearts will also be healed, and we will finally be able to see, to truly see the truth that only Jesus can show us. This doesn't make sense to Nicodemus because he wants to study his way into seeing Christ's truth. Study has taken Nicodemus really everywhere he's gone in this life. He trusts it. You know, he he wants to engage in a kind of a friendly debate about theological ideas. In other words, Nicodemus wants to think his way into a new way of living. And in John chapter 3, Jesus makes it clear we're going to have to live our way into a new way of thinking. We have to live our way into a new way of seeing. Jesus says we're going to have to live by the truth, then we'll see the truth. We live by the truth, then we'll see the truth. More and more each and every day. Now, in a world where, if I think we're going to be honest, you and I like to learn new ideas without really having to live a new life in light of those ideas, what Jesus says to Nicodemus here and to us is really, really challenging. Because ultimately, he's asking us to stop reducing our faith to talking points that we either agree with or we don't agree with, or we understand or we don't quite understand it. He's He's asking us to stop trying to win the argument long enough to win the war. And and the war I'm talking about is not who is more or less right. The war isn't between us and them. John, throughout the gospel, is consistent. There is a war that's going on, but it's between good and evil. It's between light and darkness. It's between life and death. Now, you and I, we get really caught up, I think, in trying to label not just our world, but all the people in our world. And it's really easy to start to say, well, these people over here are good, and we pass judgment, and these people over here are bad, they're evil, we pass judgment. You know, Jesus doesn't see people like that. 
you know, when we get to the, the verses where there's this verdict that light has come into the world, people are just people. Right? Jesus sees, sees us as, as people that, that he loves with every fiber of his being. Right? Jesus sees every one of us as someone that he loves more than life itself. Now, what he does see is that people he deeply loves struggle at times with doing things that are not good. Right? Doing things that are evil. Our actions speak. Right? And they speak for the whole world to see. All of us know that if we're going to be really honest, that when it comes to life, that every single person does some things that are good and does other things that aren't good, that, that we're all a complex, complicated mix. But then there are times in our lives and times in the lives of other people where, for whatever reason, the evil that they're struggling against holds a sway over them, right? It's, it's not just something that it happens that they do and they realize it and then they, they try to grow past it. No, it's actually, they're, they're imprisoned by it. They're captivated by it. They can't stop. And Jesus says, in those moments when you look at someone and you realize that they've lost their way, that they're a prisoner of the darkness, the last option that we have is to try to bring up our talking points and prove to them how wrong they are, hoping that somehow we're going to get through to them, that the last thing they need from us is additional criticism or condemnation. What they need is, what they need is to be loved into new lives where they can start to see the light. That's what, they, that's what Nicodemus needs. It's what I need. It's what you need. To be loved, not just into new ideas, but to be loved into a new life where we can start to see the light. And I got to tell you, that's a, that's a very different approach to engaging groups of people or individual people that I, I disagree with and I don't understand and I, I struggle with it. You know, the approach I saw growing up that Christians would take, the, the approach I still see often is that we end up losing people who we should be winning for Christ because we're more interested in winning the argument. We lose them. We lose them. And there's just too much at stake. Everything's at stake. You know, how do we do that? And I see us doing this, it's always accidentally, right? You never set up and... You wake up and you think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offend people and hopefully I'll get through to one of them. But this is what happens, right? You, you see the way. We end up engaging in cultural disagreements and, and who's right and who's wrong. The first thing that you, you do if you want to run somebody off on accident is to assume that your own knowledge is absolute. You're just smarter than everybody else. It's not your fault. That's a burden you have to bear. By possessing a self-righteous spirit that makes us feel better than in the midst of the argument. You know, you think, look, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I'm just better at this than you. Whatever this is, it could actually be as shallow as I'm just better at winning arguments than you are. 
by demonizing people who belong to a different group. They're, they're not just mistaken. They hate America. Right? They're not, they don't just disagree with me. They're Hitler. I, I, I don't have to treat them like a person. They're the, they're, they're the monster that's ruining everything. Then we get into this weird thing where we start to try to figure out who's all the way sold out in our group. Right? Who, who, who can we figure out? Are they loyal or are they disloyal? You know, if you say something differently than I might say it, and I know that I'm right, then I also know that you're wrong. And if you're wrong, then what are you doing in here with us? Because we're the people who are right. And finally, we... We slip into using shame to control or condemn people. Whether they're in our group or they're not. You know, if you're trying to motivate someone by making them feel worse about themselves, you're not doing the work of the gospel. Just not. Now, this is not a slide that makes me feel good. But these words help me understand what is wrong with things right now. Christian people are supposed to be the people who love others into new life where they can start to see the light. That's what Jesus is trying to say to Nicodemus, but he's not just trying to say it, he's, he's trying to model it for him. He, he, he's trying to say, you keep thinking that if I, if I tell you the right ideas, you can start believing. You'll think about it, and then you'll just suddenly start to be different. But that's, that's not actually how this whole thing's going to work. You're going to have to partner with God to be changed. This is beyond us to fix on our own. It takes new birth. But more than new birth, it takes new life. And you know, sometimes I listen to Christian people and we brag about being born again as if that's the end of it. Like it's accomplishment that you managed to get born. You know, that's great. It's great. But who are you becoming after your birth? Who are you growing up into? That's, that's what Jesus is going to show us throughout the rest of John's gospel. Too often, brothers and sisters, I think we lose the conversation because we're trying to win the argument. And the thing is, it's so much easier to see the other side doing this than it is to ever admit that I fall into this. When I think, let me, let me rephrase that, when I know that I'm right and you're wrong. And when I think that being right is the same thing as being saved. How in the world am I ever going to admit that maybe there's something I haven't seen? There's something I don't know that's the truth but I haven't seen it yet. So often the people who are different from us seem dangerous to us because of that difference and the worst thing we can imagine is them gaining an inch of ground. So we go on the attack and we try to win them by defeating them. I don't exactly know how we think that's going to work, but we try. And any time we reduce the beautiful truth of Jesus we reduce it to a weapon we can use to beat someone else in an ugly debate of ideas, we are falling back into our old lives more than we're embracing the new life that Jesus wants us to get to experience. 
Brothers and sisters, I guess what I want to ask you is, um, how can we help other people see the truth of Christ if we would rather explain it to them instead of live it out in front of them? Because, man, I am a lot better at explaining than I am at living. And how am I going to experience the truth that Jesus wants me to experience if I don't try to live it every single day with God's help? Live it every single day. I'll tell you this much. This journey to become like Jesus, this journey to see what Nicodemus knows he can't see but he desperately wants to see, that, that whole journey that we're on together, it's never just a matter of talk. It's always a matter of example. We need to live. And in living, we need to show people what they can't see anywhere else, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, I just ask you to think about who is it in your life that needs to be loved into a new life where they can start to see God's light. Who is it? Let's be the people who live that way. Let's stand and sing together now. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely. Altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. King of all days, oh so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Only you came to the earth you created, all for our sake became poor. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Beauty that made this heart adore you, hope of a life spent with
difícil. It's been a blessing today to be here with y'all. It's a really nice-sized crowd, but we don't want to forget the folks who are still at home and uh, being with us uh, virally, or how, whatever that word is. Um, wrong. Anyway, I want to read you some verses of a song that we sing at times, but uh, in these times of uh, heartache and, and trouble, we've had folks here in our family lose uh, members of their family uh, through this COVID thing, uh, through the times that we haven't been able to share and, and grieve with them. But there's been good stuff, and we need to count our blessing. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you're discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings. Angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings and see what God hath done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God hath done. Would you pray? Father, we do thank you for the blessings. We thank you of blessing of good.